This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. Today, we're looking at what healthcare will look like in 100 years. And that's in line with our theme across the station for Merdeka and Malaysia Day. And, uh, you know, we are looking at the future for Malaysia in various aspects. Uh, But of course, on the Health and Living Programme, we're discussing healthcare. And specifically in the context of technologies like artificial intelligence, which um, we can already see the potential for its vast benefits in healthcare. Uh, just to name some examples, it could enable remote analysis and diagnosis of health conditions. It can process complex information for rapid decision making. And of course, it will facilitate wider sharing of information and the ideas to democratize knowledge sharing and learning. So the question I want to ask in the program today, will technology be the equalizer that enables the expertise of healthcare professionals to be applied in a more effective, empathetic and equitable manner? In other words, you know, we can have the best brains developing the best therapies and equipments, um, but will AI and technology ensure that all of this is equitably uh, shared out and can ensure a more sustainable future for all where no one's healthcare needs are neglected. Joining me in the studio today um, for this very vast discussion, a very special guest um, who is joining us all the way from, well, he's based in Tokyo, Professor Shiliti Marwala. He's the Rector of the United Nations University and Under Secretary General of the United Nations. Professor Marwala, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Uh, thank you very much. I am doing quite well. Uh, it's my first visit to Malaysia. And uh, so far, so good. Uh, I have enjoyed my visit. I met uh, the Minister of Health of Malaysia, and I am impressed by what I have seen. Fantastic. I just want to make a note of what you mentioned to me just before we started, Professor Marwala, that um, you once received the Cambridge uh, Honorary Cambridge Malaysia Award. It was, uh, I think, given to scholars of you know distinguished achievement in Cambridge. Yes. And that uh, was such a nice discovery. No, yes. Uh, the award uh, was funded by the former Prime Minister of Malaysia, Dr. Mahathir bin Mohamed, uh, who was a very good friend to our uh, president, uh, Nelson Mandela. And uh, he offered uh, the Cambridge uh, Commonwealth Trust uh, money to establish uh, scholarships uh, uh, that would primarily uh, uh, fund students from South Africa. And uh, I was given such scholarship. Uh, and uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I had another scholarship. And they said, "You will, then we are going to make you an honorary scholar. Ah. And then I went to the ceremony. I received the certificate. And I'm very proud of the certificate. And... Um Professionally, Professor, you're actually an artificial intelligence engineer. And that's why I think we will be drawing on your expertise to look at how AI and, and that the, the technologies in that area should be shaped to set the path for the next century. And of course, you know, coming back to our experience here in Malaysia, what we will need to build up to not only utilize technology, but to be part of driving its development as well. No, no, absolutely. Uh, I, I was trained as an engineer and I did a PhD at Cambridge in artificial intelligence and uh, 
And I, I have spent quite a great deal of time doing research in the application of uh, artificial intelligence to medical uh, 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 sciences uh, and medicine and health. Uh, and uh, in fact, I actually have four uh, patents, uh, U.S. patents on medical technologies. Uh, uh, so I am quite... Uh, uh, interested and active in the field of developing technologies to advance uh, uh, healthcare, fair healthcare uh, that is accurate and that respect uh, human dignity. Absolutely, and uh, I would like to find out more about um, your uh, work specifically uh, and also how it would be widened. But perhaps we can take a step back and look at where we are today in terms of the the world and our health um, problems and what are the challenges that face us. I mean, it's 2023 and we are actually doing poorly when it comes to one of the most fundamental health indicators, which uh, if I could uh, say life expectancy mm. uh, would be something that, that we would look at. Um, and the, the huge gap among countries. If we look at countries like Chad, it's um, 53 years life expectancy. So mm. um, what are your thoughts on this wide disparity and what does this tell us about the major issues that we need to address globally? Mm. Well, I mean, I think uh, the issues of health, uh, even in the most developed uh, countries, uh, have huge uh, problems. Even in age society, uh, age-related diseases, uh, we, we still need to find uh, cures and remedies uh, for them. Uh, so that we can, uh, it's not just about uh, expanding uh, the lifespan, but it is also uh, about expanding the quality of that lifespan. Now, what are some of the issues that are at play? Of course, uh, you know, the, 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 the one aspect is our own behaviors as indicators, as individuals. And I was quite uh, pleased when I was meeting the Minister of Health of Malaysia and she was telling me about uh, uh, behavioral science uh, to advance uh, the health care, you know. So uh, we, we have to be active as individuals. We need to uh, take walks. We need to eat uh, right. And we need to avoid things that have been proven to be bad for our health. That is the first part. Then the second part is access to medical care. Uh, you know, we, there has to be uh, doctors who are appropriately qualified uh, and who can be able to deal with conditions. Now, we live at an era where uh, decision-making is not just about a human doctor. Uh, there are many medical devices that you can be able to use to advance uh, the accuracy of diagnosing certain diseases, AI is definitely at the forefront of that, uh, and 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 medical care increasingly is becoming a, a, a human machine activity, and obviously there is lagging behind. Uh, if you are a doctor that was trained in the in the 80s uh, we need to uh, find out how we can be able to or create programs to retrain them and, uh, and make them understand some of these technologies that are developed developing medical schools must now infuse technology into their curriculum so that uh, they can be able to deal with these issues then the third aspect is medicines 
You know, I mean, if you just look at cancers, uh, some of the therapies are, are actually quite expensive and they are not universally accessible, you know. Um, you can be able to go and do some tests, genetic tests on some of the risks uh, that uh, you might have as an individual, but uh, not everybody actually has uh, um, access to that. I mean, one classic example is uh, access to mammogram so that we can deal with issues of uh, of breast cancer. You know, uh, 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 of course, with technology now, uh, it is quite possible with wearables, that we can be able to have uh, clothes that will be able to detect that on a daily basis, something that is not possible today. You know, uh, uh, at best, people will go and have annual checks uh, and so on and so forth. So those are some of the things that are actually uh, contributing towards uh, differentiated life expectancies. I think I'm, I'm still having trouble picturing how these technologies, uh, for instance, um, if we're talking about how we could make or devise wearables to bring healthcare to people rather than having to go or travel somewhere to to access a mammogram, as, as an example. But I'm having trouble sort of picturing down the road how we can ensure that everyone can access that. Because at the end of the day, we're still talking about um, the development and the use of technology that comes at a cost itself. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, one of the phenomena, economic phenomena, is that uh, once technology is widespread, the cost goes down. I mean, there was uh, there is a device that uh, uh, several people uh, are experimenting with it is... Uh, is a bra that is uh, that measures conductivity of a breast with a view of 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 diagnosing as early as possible the possibility of uh, of of breast cancer it is definitely much 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 cheaper than you walking into the place of course it's not as accurate we'll have to say that it's not a diagnostic tool it's a screening tool you know, and the worst uh, that could happen is if uh, there are some red uh, lights, you can go to a doctor and the doctor can do further tests. And I am quite confident that uh, this would obviously be quite cost effective. Uh, I mean, other classic examples, uh, uh, obviously, uh, with wearables, uh, we know about wearables that can be able to read uh, 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 blood sugar levels just by looking at uh, uh, at the color of your your fingers. Obviously, uh, looking at the blood without necessarily uh, pricking someone, you know. Uh, and 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 these things can easily be integrated into our smartphones. Uh, uh, and the cost of that uh, would obviously be much much cheaper, you know. Again. These are devices that can be used to improve uh, healthcare, you know. Uh, but we have to be guarded. Our regulators, uh, our lawmakers uh, must ensure that uh, uh, these devices actually adhere to standards. Uh, these devices are not used as uh, data capturers on behalf of, for example, um, health insurance companies. Uh, which will kill the whole idea of uh, pooled risk 
and individualize it uh, uh, because the idea of getting an insurance is that uh, um, the pool pays for the one who is going to have a misfortune of having to go and have a complicated uh, uh, operation, you know. So uh, we have to be guarded. We have to understand the ethics of it. The World Health Organization has actually developed ethical guidelines for the use of AI. I was in the committee that developed uh, those guidelines. Uh, and, of course, this also means that our our bureaucrats, our lawmakers must actually understand technology. They shouldn't be experts, but they should at least be literate about it and understand its implications. Yes, but the technology often leapfrogs the regulations, right, and the safeguards. And as tech becomes more easily commercialised, we're also playing this um, catch-up game. So when we come back from a quick break, I'll be asking Professor Marwala what are his concerns over the misuse of technology. I'm speaking to Professor Shilidzi Marwala, Rector of the United Nations University and Under Secretary General of the United Nations, about healthcare in the next 100 years in line with BFM's theme of 21st Century Malaysia in conjunction with Merdeka and Malaysia Day in August and September. Stay tuned, we'll be right back on Health and Living BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. On the show with me today, Professor Shilidzi Marwala. He's the Rector of the United Nations University and also Under Secretary General of the United Nations. We're discussing how healthcare would look in 100 years in line with BFM's theme of 21st century Malaysia. So we've been picturing how technologies like AI and uh, smart wearables, for instance, could enable more rapid and accessible diagnosis of diseases. But Prof Mawala has already raised the importance of ethical use of these technologies. And indeed, one can easily picture a dystopian future where technologies are used to exploit, divide and colonise rather than unite and advance. So, Professor, before the break, you mentioned that you're a member of the WHO committee that developed the ethical guidelines of using artificial intelligence in medicine. Can you share a little bit about what WHO's guidelines articulate? What are the risks? The technology, the pace of technological development is much, much, much uh, faster than the pace of uh, legislative changes. So much, much faster. So there will always be this catch up. And that is why you must have guidelines. Uh, Guidelines such as uh, you should not misuse people's data. You don't have to wait for legislation. You have to tell the people who are developing these technologies that those are the rules, you know. Uh, Guidelines that uh, uh, systems must not be biased because we know technologies are biased uh, depending on who, uh, where the database was actually uh, gathered that to train the the system. For example, if uh, the system is trained uh, with data that was collected in Europe, Probably it's not going to work as effectively in in Malaysia, you know. Uh, uh, So a a developer here uh, should not use uh, an easily available database in one part of the world with uh, detrimental consequences, uh, for example. So we have to plan in advance, regulate in advance, of course, so that uh, the worst cannot happen as lawmakers 
are developing legislations to control this, uh, to regulate this uh, technology. I want to come uh, back to something you briefly mentioned earlier about your own work in developing application of AI in healthcare. Um, and I think it relates to the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism, mm-hmm. epileptic activity, HIV and COVID-19. Can mm-hmm. you share a little bit about how that works? Yeah. No, I mean, uh, epileptic activity, you have uh, a device called uh, EEG uh, that they put on your, on your scalp. And then you have all these waves that are actually uh, measured and the doctor looks at that and will be able to make a, a call, you know. And, and this is the work that we actually did quite uh, long, a bit ago, over over 10 years ago, it might, might even be longer. Uh, so th- that vast amount of data that normally the doctor will look at and make a diagnosis, we put it on an AI system, of course, you must have uh, examples, gold standard examples that sh- that basically teaches the algorithm that if uh, those uh, waves that you observe look like this, this is what it actually means. And then after that, uh, you make a diagnosis. Uh, what are the advantages of that? Well, the classic example, the advantage is that uh, uh, that machine never gets tired. A doctor does get tired. That machine does not perform... Uh, based on uh, the length of time it slept uh, the previous night, but a human doctor does, you know, uh, and uh, and we found uh, that this actually works as as well as uh, a human doctor, and this whole idea of uh, AI systems reading uh, medical images is widespread. You know, it is a widespread phenomenon, uh, and there was even a cover article on the magazine The Economist where they were uh, pondering the future of radiologists who are doctors who are trained to read these images, you know. Uh, So that is one example. Uh, Another example uh, that I can talk about is uh, the artificial larynx. Uh, We have a U.S. patent on that. Uh, where somebody will lose a, a voice box uh, simply because maybe it is cancer, but they can still move their tongue. So you obviously put a device in the tongue that reads the movement of a tongue. By that time, the voice uh, would not come out because the voice box has been removed, surgically removed uh, because of cancer. And uh, based on that, you can be able to recreate what the person is actually saying. Mm -hmm. And with uh, adversarial networks, you can be able to do it with the original voice of a person if you have a sample of of that person's, a recorded sample of that person's voice, you know. So that is uh, another example. COVID-19 was uh, a work that we did quite recently. And I think uh, the big issues were... When are the peaks of the waves of COVID-19? And we did some work uh, in South Africa where we were predicting, we actually predicted um, the waves quite well. And what AI was doing here, uh, there's something called the SIR model that is used to understand the spread of uh, pandemics. Uh, and obviously, uh, the trick there is to be able to estimate the parameters of the, of those models. 
and uh, it's normally very expensive uh, computationally, uh, and we were using uh, AI to be able to deal with that thing, and it worked quite, quite well. Then when it came to the issue of HIV, it's an interesting work uh, because uh, it was not the work that was inspired by uh, medical uh, fraternity. It was work that was inspired by insurance companies Mm -hmm. because insurance, uh, uh, when there was a serious uh, issue with HIV in South Africa, they wanted to find out uh, if they are giving you money, whether you are going to live long enough to be able to pay it. And they would ask you to go and take a test. And then what we're doing, we're using antenatal database to train an AI model to be able to estimate the risk, you know, by basically predicting the risk, you know. And that worked very well. But there were issues there. The issue is that uh, the database is not complete. And the problem of AI with missing information is not a problem that is very well studied. In fact, we studied it so much that uh, we actually wrote two books on the subject, uh, Missing Data and Machine Learning. Um, uh, what happens in a car uh, that is using sensors and an AI to, uh, to drive itself if one of those sensors fail? Yeah. You know, uh, and uh, people say, okay, you just, whatever you measure, you should always put three sensors. <laughs> so just in case another Backups. one... Uh, <laughs> fails. And that is one of the solutions. Another one is actually to design algorithms that will be able to estimate when a signal is not available, you know. Yeah. All right. Um, You've identified that um, lack of data could be a gap. Um, I mean, data can play both roles then, Mm. because with AI, it enables you to read huge amounts of data if, if it was available. Absolutely. And you know that idea of data, um, perhaps at at an individual level, you don't you don't comprehend um, its vast potential. Mm. But when we're talking about healthcare systems, when we're talking about um, policies uh, and putting in place therapies that you know um, will be needed by a specific population, it's it all comes down to whether you have the data, mm. Mm. isn't it? Mm. And, and the ethics, uh, the ethical guidelines say that you have to ethically gather that data. Uh, and the legal terminology is that there has to be consent, but it has to be consent where somebody is aware of what they are actually doing. You know, so that people cannot use bombastic words to trick people to give their data that ultimately we will end up being used against them in an insurance company predicting that you are going to get certain uh, diseases and uh, they simply do not uh, insure you. So, but uh, this issue of data scarcity is a big issue. In fact, uh, this week uh, I and my colleagues have issued a policy uh, brief on the use of synthetic data. So in AI, you have a concept called synthetic data. And according to Gartner Group, by 2024, 60% of the data that is going to be used to train AI data will be synthetic data. What does that mean? It's a data that is created. 
by an AI system, you know. And there are obviously instances where it is beneficial to do that. If you have an AI system that is that is uh, going to uh, to deal with specific conditions, but for some reason you have more data of males than females, you can augment the female data by generating synthetic data, you know. Uh, and, and by the way, synthetic data can be good and it can be bad. It can be bad if it is used as fake news. We know about uh, videos of uh, people who are purported to have said things which they have not said, but that footage is synthetic. Somebody has made it in the lab. No. Um, in fact, there is a website uh, that you can go to. These people never existed. You wouldn't be able to know they never existed. You know, mm. But the same technology can be used to make textbooks in medical schools where you don't have to worry about the identity of a person. But because the person, even though they look, nobody can tell whether they existed or not. They never existed, you know, mm. and so on and so forth, you know. But... The fundamental issue is that synthetic data is not as good as the real one. Mm. And, uh, and, and we need to ensure that uh, we have adequate data. Uh, we have adequate data to be able to represent whatever phenomenon we are dealing with. I mean, there was, an, uh, there was a, a case in the United States where uh, a system was developed to basically look at... Uh, a curriculum vitae of people who are applying for a job um, and be able to narrow it down to maybe 20 to be considered. And then uh, it turns out that it was um, for that particular job, which tended to be male-dominated, it was discriminating against women. Mm. So it's a well-publicized story. And the reason was because the data was unbalanced at the training stage. Synthetic data could have helped it could have helped, but it would not be a perfect help. All right. Mm. What are the problems in getting data? Now, why is there data scarcity? Well, I mean, there are certain phenomenon, uh, certain diseases, for example, affect males more than they affect females, which means by definition, if you have a system uh, that you're going to use to train an algorithm to understand that phenomenon, you will have data of males more than females. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, it's a classic example. Uh, if we, sorry, if we look at low-income populations, rural, people living in rural, remote areas, absolutely. Would, would, we, would they be on the losing end? Because they, are they would absolutely be on the losing end. That's another thing. You know, uh, Ethnic minorities, for example, uh, 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 by definition, there is just fewer data of them than than the data of uh, uh, the ethnic majority, you know. And uh, and if uh, um, it is really tiny, it means that uh, your systems that you train on your population is biased. Yeah. And you can, in, that is instances where it might be unavoidable to use synthetic data to augment the data so that uh, uh, the algorithm can at least uh, approximately uh, equally understand both populations. I see, I see. There needs to be that awareness, though, that uh, the gap is there. No, absolutely. And that is why the ethical guidelines does state that 
data representation is very, very important because algorithms that are going to arise from being trained by that data are going to be biased. Mm. You know, um, earlier you mentioned there are even conversations about whether humans will be replaced by technology. Um, what is your view of, of that argument? Could the future actually be one where humans then, or, or human expertise uh, and, uh, you know, perhaps jobs that um, a technology cannot take over would be concentrated in areas where it's most needed instead of humans being spread too thin as it is currently? Look, I mean, I have to, I have to say that uh, the issue of the, the world of work is a complicated one. Because you have an additional dimension that uh, companies would like to be competitive. And if they are not competitive, uh, then they are going to be out of business. And what normally happens is that if you automate some of those jobs, it makes some of the companies competitive, you know. Now, the question is, in a situation like that, what do you do? What do you do to the people who are going to be displaced from the world of work? Uh, of course, uh, the solution is to retrain them. But some people are saying, oh, maybe the jobs that, are, that emerge after the automation are fewer than the jobs that existed before the automation and so on and so forth. And of course, that is where governments come in. You know, uh, uh, which jobs are at risk? What are the replacement, possible replacement jobs that are emerging? How do we prepare our population to be able to deal with uh, uh, that phenomenon? How do we safeguard against the vast potential of technologies and, in fact, the fourth industrial revolution being concentrated in the hands of corporate elites? Well, I mean, it, it, you know, this is a, this is a, this is a big issue. Uh, we need governments to be vigilant. We need regulations. Uh, and now the question is, if you come from a country with... A, a population of 1.5 million people. There are, there are countries with such populations, you know. How do you enforce a regulation against a, a big $1 trillion company, you know? That imbalance, and that is why the United Nations University, you know, the United Nations, the Secretary General, and I am on his uh, Scientific Advisory Committee, is saying... We must have global norms to protect that small country that will not be able to stand up against uh, the mighty powers of uh, corporate, you know. Uh, and it's not even small countries, even medium-sized countries uh, are negotiating at a disadvantage uh, over with those uh, uh, companies, you know. Uh, so uh, 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 that is why uh, the World Health Organization came with the ethical guidelines, you know. You, you could easily say countries must do that themselves, you know, and ensure that uh, medical devices that they import into their countries meet their specific requirements. But we know that is not going to happen mm -hmm. if uh, your market is small. You need um, something where we can pull as, uh, as the world some norms, some regulations that are going to work for at least all of us. And, uh, and the other bad body of the imbalance of corporate wealth would be corruption. Uh, and corruption is going to 
um, throw everything off course, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the irony is that uh, you can use AI to be able to detect some of this corruption, <laughs> uh, to do uh, lifestyle audits that includes looking at... Uh, the social media posts and clothes that they are wearing <laughs> and the restaurants that they are visiting to be able to tell whether uh, this person is living beyond their means and there has to be somebody who is funding them, you know. But corruption is a cancer that needs to be weeded out of uh, many, many societies. It exists everywhere, you know, and we need to deal with it because it robs the population of the re necessary resources to deal with essential issues such as uh, health, for example. Yeah. Mm. Will tech and AI help or hinder, um, you know, the way we address corruption? I think it can help, but it can also hinder uh, because you can use it... Uh, to steal money from a bank, <laughs> you know, okay, yeah. uh, you can use it to uh, deceive uh, an unsuspecting, vulnerable person to offer them jobs, whereas you want to hold them hostage, for example, you know. So, so it depends on what we do, uh, and that is why the idea of ensuring that uh, AI should be for good, not for bad. It's very, very important, and it needs to be ingrained in our legislative uh, DNA uh, so that uh, you, will never, you will never be able to prevent people using these things uh, f uh, in a corrupt manner. But, uh, but we have to, like any other crime, we need to put systems that will disincentivize people from participating in corruption. So you think that... At the end of the day, governments need to be in control of the use of AI and not leave it to a free market? I wouldn't use the word control. Mm. I would say there has to be some ethical guidelines mm. that guide companies that are operating like any other company. Uh, for example, you go to places, they will say, you can operate, but you, can, you can't dump your waste into the, our rivers. You know, uh, and that is not controlling. Yeah, it's just to set the boundaries and saying that uh, uh, if you do this, uh, all I'm saying is that there are issues about AI that needs to be put into that basket of things that should not be done. Yeah, you know, rather than controlling. Yeah, we'll go for another quick break and come back to continue our discussion about healthcare in 21st century Malaysia with my guest, Professor Shilidzi Marwala, Rector of the United Nations University and Under Secretary General of the United Nations. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living. I'm T. Shaoik and my guest today is Professor Shilidzi Marwala, Rector of the United Nations University and Under Secretary General of the United Nations. We're discussing what healthcare will look like in 21st century Malaysia in the context of technologies like AI, which will likely drive tomorrow's advancements and solutions. We've looked broadly and globally. And now if we can spend just the next 10 minutes um, trying to imagine what Malaysia's healthcare will look like in 100 years from what you know of Malaysia, Professor. And uh, somehow, you know, 100 years seems impossible for me to imagine. But what do you think our potential is for our healthcare? I think the potential is very, very good. 
Uh, I think uh, the, I'm going to make predictions now. Uh, of course, you will see, but these are not uh, genuine predictions because life expectancies always increase. <laughs> I think uh, in 100 years, people in Malaysia will be living much, much longer than they are living today, you know. Uh, I think uh, healthcare uh, would be world-class healthcare and there will be people who will be coming to Malaysia as... Uh, medical tourists and uh, entering private uh, hospitals in Malaysia. I think uh, Malaysia will be developing technologies that are going to enhance the state of health, not just for Malaysia, but for the rest of the world, uh, uh, trading them, and it will be economically prosperous country. That sounds like the vision, you know, as Malaysians, we all hope for as well. But we also recognize um, the the pitfalls being um, the, the sort of income, uh, you know, sort of scale that we're on, the gap as well between, say, middle income and, and the very low income. Uh, and healthcare is, I think, where you see um, that, our healthcare, our public healthcare system is there to serve um, the most vulnerable, but it's also straining at the seams. Um, what do you think we need to do to make sure as we leapfrog ahead, um, they aren't left behind as well? Well, I think you need to invest into technology because I think it is going to bring down the cost of healthcare. I think the issues of... Uh, of lifestyle changes are important uh, because uh, with uh, with careful eating, with uh, regular exercises and so on and so forth, you can at least cut hospital uh, number of people who are seeking uh, uh, medical care by at least 20%. Not because you don't want them to come, but because they don't have problems to come for, you know, uh, uh, I think uh, uh, the issue of, of reimagining a, a Malaysian doctor that is seamlessly using technology to make a diagnosis uh, would uh, improve accuracy of diagnosis and care and therefore uh, reduce the number of people coming back you know, uh, to for care because uh, the diagnosis was not perfect in yeah. their last uh, uh, consultation using technology uh, and so on and so forth. So I am quite optimistic for Malaysia. You know what you said about behaviours, just <clears throat> what you can do to change your lifestyle so that you won't actually need care mm. is so... It just, it's just just the most basic building block, mm. I feel. Mm. Um, but also we are struggling with that um, a great deal uh, with sort of uh, increasing access to just more foods, yeah. uh, more sedentary lifestyles. I wonder whether there's a role in AI and tech to to sort of tip the balance somehow, to, to play an enabling role. No, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, the fusion of uh, AI and behavioral science is actually quite advanced. I'm actually, I've just completed a book on how AI can augment behavioral science. You know, I mean, the, the classic example uh, are our smartwatches that uh, every now and then remind us to 
to stand up. Yeah. <laughs> You've been sitting too long. <laughs> You've been sitting too long, you know. Uh, uh, so, uh, so, and and those are actually the mixture of uh, AI's predictive capabilities uh, that is aimed at modifying the behavior of a person. And once it does that, uh, often enough, you don't need to be reminded uh, to stand up every now and then mm-hmm. to make sure that uh, uh, and and to walk and so on and so forth. So those those things are going to complement each other. Yeah, I mean the future is really really bright, but um, I, I guess for Malaysia, um, we just want to make sure that the people living in. I don't know if you'll have a chance to see them at all. The long houses in mm. in um, Borneo, Sarawak, for mm. instance, you know, mm. the most remote areas, who still um, travel to school by boat and logging trucks, yeah, yeah. for instance. Mm. We we just need to make sure that they'll they're going to be in in this as well. No, absolutely, absolutely, and the, I mean, the, 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 you know, one of the things uh, that we advocate for as the United Nations is to leave no one behind. And you, to leave no one behind despite their economic uh, circumstances. And human uh, uh, health is a human right. And we need to ensure that uh, uh, globally there is enough money to properly capacitate our hospice, hospitals to be able to, to take care of, of people. And the key to that is to making our hospitals efficient. And the key of making our hospitals efficient include deploying the correct technologies, mm. you know, to manage our cues in uh, casualty wards, uh, to predict uh, problems uh, before they exist, you know. Uh, it is clear that uh, if uh, some form of cancer is detected uh, uh, earlier enough, for example, it costs less than if it is detected later and the outcomes are better. You know, uh, so all those things are, are quite key. And I am glad that uh, in the white uh, paper, uh, health white paper, uh, uh, those are things that are covered. Final question. Um, if you could unleash your imagination for us, because this is your area, this is your AI is your baby. And, you know, if we look at what AI can do today, <clears throat> it's quite close to what sci-fi envisioned decades ago. So, 100 years later, what can AI do in year 2123? No, I think it is going to do many, many of the things that uh, we cannot be able to do. Our cars will be driven by AI. Uh, most of the tasks that we are doing, and I will go as far as saying that uh, up to half of the tasks that are doing we are doing today will completely be done by AI. And uh, we will have to find other things that we do uh, because human beings cannot be idle, you know. Uh, I think uh, the education is going to be different. Um, Many of the things that we learn today, um, AI will be able to give us solutions, which means uh, we have to up what education is all about. It is not about... uh, Uh, just writing an essay because a machine can be able to do that is the creativity behind the essay that is actually quite important is the originality behind uh, the essay that is uh, that is quite important Uh, many of the data that we analyze graphs that we analyze by looking at them ai will be able to do that Uh, the role of a human being is to add that wisdom 
I said wisdom, not intelligence. Wisdom, you know, uh, because AI can do intelligent things, but I'm not sure whether it is going to be wise. I always use uh, uh, the example of my grandmother that if I have a problem that is so sophisticated, my grandmother would know, would give me a good advice, better than what Google is going to give. And that is because she, she was wise. And wisdom uh, is going to, uh, to be key to what we do in our education system. And uh, our use of technology in the, in the coming generations. Thank you so much, Professor Marwala. I've been speaking to Professor Shilidzi Mawala, Under Secretary General of United Nations and Rector of the United Nations University, visualizing where Malaysia's healthcare will be in a hundred years. This has been Health and Living BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.